Hello, hello, tech policy world. We're back with the tech policy grind. We really missed the grind, and we've got some exciting stuff planned and coming your way this season. If you're new here, my name is Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Aeronet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy across a whole host of issues, including AI, cybersecurity, privacy, broadband, internet governance, content moderation, and so, so much more. It's a crazy world out there on the World Wide Web, and we're here to guide you through it. More debriefing, in case you're new to the show, this podcast is entirely produced by the fellows at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Who are the fellows, you might ask? No bias, obviously, but we're the coolest kids around. AKA, we're an interdisciplinary group of tech policy nerds who work collaboratively on a whole host of projects. We run this podcast, for instance, as well as a tech policy hackathon, writing competition, webinars, and other cool stuff too. We just welcomed our newest class of fellows, which for the first time ever will overlap with the existing class of fellows, the latter of which I and some other folks from the show are a part of. You'll get to meet some of the new fellows soon. We think they're pretty cool. So it's season four. We started this show back up almost exactly a year ago from its three-ish year hiatus, and we wrapped season three of the show in December. As promised, we're back now with coverage of the latest happenings in the tech policy world from the State of the Net conference, which happened just last week on March 6 in Washington, DC. The State of the Net conference has been a staple of tech policy conversations for nearly two decades, which is wild. It's a convening point for folks who don't just care about these issues, they're decision makers and provocative thinkers in the rooms where the action happens. Technology and the internet play a huge role in our daily lives, so understanding the conversations that go behind the technology policy choices that our society's lawmakers, regulators, innovators, and decision makers make matters. So that's Stave the Net in a nutshell. We were there, we were chatting with people, and now we bring to you part one of the many conversations we had. We think these folks are pretty interesting, and we hope you do too. In this episode, we chat with Alan Davidson, Assistant Secretary of the Department of Commerce, who's leading the National Telecommunication and Information Administration. And if you're into the alphabet soup of regulatory acronyms, you can call it the NTIA. We chatted after his fireside chat keynote remarks on some of the things he's prioritizing in his endeavors there. Those endeavors matter because Congress has given the NTIA about $50 billion to make the internet accessible across the United States. More on that later. Class 4 Foundry Fellow and my pal, Lama Muhammad, and I also chat with Bertram Lee Jr., Senior Policy Counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum, a think tank working on the cutting edge of happenings in the world of data or information privacy. And we chat after his participation on a panel concerning developments in the artificial intelligence space as well as their intersections with privacy. Lama also chats with Patrick Lynn, an author and an associate at Latham & Watkins, which is a big law firm for any of my non-lawyer friends listening, following a panel he was on covering generative AI developments. That's that chat GPT stuff you've been hearing about lately. 
so we hope you enjoy this episode. It was a ton of fun for us to create it, and let us know what you think about what you hear. We want you to join the conversation. First up, Assistant Secretary Alan Davidson in conversation with yours truly. Awesome. Thank so you for being here. You just gave keynote remarks within a fireside yes. chat context. Right. And one of the initial things that you pointed to was your sort of mission to connect the U.S. Right. Um, and tackle rural broadband issues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So could you dig into that for anyone listening yeah. on sort of what that mission looks like and right. what, you're, uh, what you're evaluating? Well, the president has given us a very simple and very ambitious mission, which is to connect everyone in the United States with high-speed reliable, affordable internet service. And uh, he keeps saying everyone, which makes us very nervous because <laughs> everyone is a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. But truly, you know, we have been talking about the digital divide in this country for over 20 years. And now, thanks to the bipartisan infrastructure law and other laws that have been passed, we actually have the resources to do something really mm -hmm. serious and structural about it. And that is a huge opportunity, right? We have $50 billion dollars within the NTIA that we're administering. There are other agencies that have funding, not as much, different parts of this, the Department of Agriculture, FCC. And this is a really a once-in-a-generation thing. Like, you know, we will not get tens of billions of dollars to do this again. So right. no pressure, uh, <laughs> but we're, um, we're working really hard. Uh, and we've had a lot of early success already in getting some of this money out the door in the, the uh, next... Uh, year or two is going to be really critical in getting the big the big pots of money out. Right. And so where is that push going towards right, right. now? What's sort of the current state yes. of connectivity in the U.S.? Great, great question. So part of this is around access. So, you know, there really are millions of Americans who don't have access to high-speed broadband, just could mm -hmm. not get it even if they wanted to. Um, and so... Uh, a huge part of our work, $42 billion of our program, is focused on uh, access and building out infrastructure. And we're working with the states to do that. So each state, this year, this year, each state will come up with a plan and present it to us, and we will make allocations and give money out to the states to, in turn, make sure that everybody in their state is connected. Um, there's also a whole lot of work we're doing around equity and adoption. So... You can have access, you can have a wire running past your house, but if you can't afford to be online, that connection doesn't do any good. And right. you can afford to be online, but if you don't have a device or you don't have the skills to, you know, kind of know what to do online, that doesn't help. So we're also funding digital equity programs to make sure that people have the skills. And there's a big affordability project coming out of the FCC to make sure that low-income Americans can really, uh, it's part of our program to make sure that low-income Americans can participate as well. Definitely. And on the international level, we've seen discourse about the digital right. divide for quite some time. But now at the International Telecommunication Union, or right. ITU, which, by the way, is where I started my oh, no career. Kidding. Wow, uh, really? That's great. Back in 2019, I was an intern when right. I was studying abroad Excellent. in Geneva. It's a great place. Uh, to, that must have been a really fun place to work at. It was. It was yeah. a lot of fun. Geneva is a beautiful city. Right. Uh, right. But Doreen Bogdan Martin is yeah. now at the helm, uh, right. now as the Secretary General. So what does that sort of 
collaboration or yeah. um, interactivity with the ITU look like going into 2023? That's a great question. It's, um, first of all, so her election was so historic, and we talked about it, I talked about it during the conference, just the um, what it felt like in the room when she was elected. I mean, it just really felt like a moment. Um, but part of that moment was about her and her history and, you know, really her historic uh, role now. But part of it is also about the future of the ITU. And I think she's got a real vision that we in the U.S. government support of the ITU's role, not just in the standardization work it does and the important technical work, but also as a force for development and um, thinking about how we connect the next billion people. And I think there's an important role there. And she's so that's really been her, you know, kind of her mission for a long time. And so I, we're really excited to work with her and that team uh, as the ITU kind of steps into that work. We also have the World Radio Conference coming up this year. So the, the nuts and bolts of the global standardization work marches on. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, this initiative that she's going to be taking that the ITU has been doing for a long time, I think is really very exciting. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I'm excited to see how it all yeah. plays out. So now going back to the solely American context, yes. uh, we know that the U.S. is perhaps behind in federal privacy legislation. And I'm curious as to your take on how privacy interacts with the mission to get folks connected. It's actually, that's a great linkage because one of the things that we've been thinking about when we're thinking about getting everybody connected is what is this internet that they will be participating in? And especially when you have a lot of people who are who are going to be new to, who haven't had access to broadband before, who haven't had access to high-speed connection before, um, it's going to open a lot of doors for them, but also are we doing enough to make sure that they're that we their, their privacy is protected, their security is protected. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to, you know, that they're, you know, we're doing enough consumer protection against the fraud and all the things that are out there. And you know, new people online have greater vulnerability, perhaps in some ways. And so, um, we're also bringing the internet and access to communities, more vulnerable communities. Our digital equity work is really focused on the elderly, minority communities who haven't been served well in the past, mm-hmm. all of those folks starkly feel this need for greater privacy protection. And so I think it dovetails really well because we've been thinking about like how to make sure that the internet they have is safe, secure, and private. Uh, and that's where, you know, the, as the president has said, we need stronger privacy protections. Indeed. So now to round us out, this is a podcast produced by young professionals right. in the field. So what would your sort of piece of advice or takeaway be for folks who are interested in yeah. tech policy and broadband issues? Right. Well, that's such a great question. First of all, there's a huge need. We need you. So uh, please engage. <laughs> I think there's lot, I'd say there's lots of different ways to be involved in this space. Um, the need we really have is for people who are excited and understand technology and also excited and understand the public policy world. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of different ways that people come at that. Some people are 
engineers or computer scientists who are learning about policy. Sometimes it's people who have more policy or legal backgrounds or you know liberal arts backgrounds but are excited about technology. And there's room for all in this space because we have so much need. Um, I think there are a lot of different places you can do this work. Uh, I've, I've been in you know, public interest organizations, I've worked in companies, I've worked in academia, and, and of course in government. And they all have their own rewards and their own ways to um, uh, move, the, move the needle on these big issues. So part of it is just picking what works for you and also you know, at different times in our lives we find different opportunities. I will make a special pitch for the government. Um, <laughs> of course. It is an honor to serve, and it's really incredibly rewarding. And whether it's a career or a tour of duty, um, I highly recommend it. And as I say, we really need, um, we have lots of specific needs, but mostly we just need people who, wanna, who are passionate about this work, who want to think about how technology can better serve humanity and human progress. And... Um, and who, who want to spend some time working, rolling up their sleeves and working on those issues. So come to ntia.gov <laughs> if you're at all interested. Uh, look for us online. We're, 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 we've got openings. We've got a lot of need, but other parts of the government do too. And whether it's in government or in other places, I just say um, thank you for being interested. Um, we need the help. And I guess the last small piece of advice I'd say is, you know, one of the hard things is there's no clear path in right. this space right now, like, I say, like, if you wanted to go work for a law firm, there's a way to, everybody knows the steps to do that, you know, mm -hmm. if you want to get an MBA, everybody knows what people do with that afterwards. We haven't developed the career paths or roles yet, it's still new enough that being a public interest technologist or a public policy person who cares about technology is, um, it's not, uh, there's no sure, there's no, um, tried and true you know, path that, that tells you all the steps you need to take. So mm -hmm. part of this is just about being entrepreneurial, finding the things that you're passionate about, doing those things, and, um, and walking that path so, yeah. uh, for yourself. So there's no right answer here. You're, we all have to find it for ourselves, but um, they say we really, um, it's, very, it's been very rewarding for me. I think there's so much need out mm -hmm. there and so much opportunity to really impact the course of how we build our technology and make sure that it is serving progress. Definitely. And that is so true that there is no tried and true set path. It's yes. often a windy and zigzaggy yes. one. So the, um, uh, the movie The Matrix, uh, Morpheus <laughs> has this great line. <laughs> There's a difference between uh, uh, knowing the path and walking the path, right? And a lot of times we walk the path and don't necessarily know that we're walking it. Um, so right. finding the things that we are passionate about um, and that excite us in this space uh, is, is, a good, is a good way forward. Um, a good northern star. Yes. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure talking to you all. Good luck with your work. Cheers. Next up, Bertram Lee Jr. in conversation with Lama Muhammad and I. Hi, Bertram. Thank you so much for joining us live on the Tech Policy Grind podcast. I wanted to ask, what is the current state of AI and what are its endeavors for inclusivity? So, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, secondly, uh, I'd say the current state of AI is in flux. I think people are really excited about 
the possibilities of AI with mm -hmm. ChatGPT right. and large language models, right. particularly being uh, out there for public consumption and public use. But also at the same time, I think people are really cognitive or really concerned about the risks, uh, the use cases, um, the equities involved with AI. And I think right. particularly for marginalized communities, it's an incredibly important time because so many of the decisions that impact people's uh, prospects in life are being automated. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean to have equity as a part of those conversations mm -hmm. when the historic models that are used to train these AI systems don't necessarily include our perspectives from the outset? Right. And so how do we make those adjustments? How do we think about that? And I think that's a conversation that's happening globally. It's not just happening in America or in Europe. Mm -hmm. It's also happening in South America. Also happens beginning to have that conversation in Africa as well um, and in the APAC region as well. Exactly. How do we build tools that represent all of us? Mm -hmm. So we've seen in the privacy world that So I think the pushback, well, here, I'll frame it in a couple of ways. I think with the EU, I think it's important to keep in mind that they have a lot easier time. There's a lot more agreement around what constitutes, um, I would say, um, policy, um, where they want um, regulation to go, what are some of uh, the concerns across not only frameworks, but also what are some of the concerns that the member nations have around these instruments and tools. That's number one. And from the U.S. perspective, there's not a lot of consensus. Well, there is consensus. It's just how we get there mm. and what rights and responsibilities we give not only to corporations, but rights we give to others um, and to people, to individuals. Those are highly, highly, highly concerning um, to firms, and understandably so. If you're trying to work through and use a model, but you don't know the real risk and the potential legal risk that you have just using a model, um, it, it stops innovation because then like, it really does hamper the willingness of firms to try and create new things. And that's where the U.S. has been a leader. But I think on the flip side is that there hasn't been a conversation, I think, specifically around, in particular, rights that individuals should have. The mm -hmm. consent of people to be, um, to have AI influence the decisions and influence the things they can and cannot do. And so, like, that construct is, I think, really, really, really important um, to kind of, like, understand from, like, the differences between the EU side and the U.S. side. EU is kind of, like, understood. It's just, like, we don't want um, algorithms, AI, to be making all of these decisions without all of these practices and processes and procedures. On the U.S. side, it's more kind of like, yeah, we can see that, but we have concerns, particularly around discrimination and the history behind that. And what you're, they're converging to a similar place. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they'll come to the same place, though. And so that's kind of what is going to, what we'll find out really in the next five years. That sounds good. And I kind of want to expand this question a little bit more and talk about the so-called Brussels effect. When we talk about AI policy, it's very U.S., EU-centric, and we don't really get to hear the developments in the Southern Hemisphere. Do nations in those regions experience similar AI harms to what's going on in the U.S. and EU, or is it a little bit different? So, you know, I have not done 
enough research about AI harms, in particular in the global south. Um, that's not something that I have uh, as much expertise in as I have from the U.S. side. Right? Okay. So I don't want to kind of like jump over my skis there. But mm -hmm. what I will say is this. Um, Brazil, Colombia, um, Mexico to a certain extent, um, and I think particularly South Africa as well, mm -hmm. um, all of those countries have history of racism. But like I'll, I'll right. just focus on Brazil and South Africa, for example. Right. Um, there is a history of kind of racism within those countries, right? The kind of like Lula election in Brazil, for example, like kind of the history of South Africa and apartheid give right. you great kind of like contrast as to who was given rights, mm -hmm. who was given property, um, whose um, literal legal existence was um, legitimized by the government. Um, interesting enough, I was talking to uh, someone at a company and they were talking about... Um, putting addresses in favelas. Right. Right, in Brazil. They're favelas, in the, and so for those who don't know, favelas in Brazil are basically like, <laughs> it, it is um, very low-income areas, right, impoverished areas that were created literally on trash heaps and on mm. trash piles and condensed down and people build houses and build communities out of those areas, but those areas were never recognized by the government. Right, yeah. And so... What do you do when you have large swaths of people who live in these areas, mm -hmm. who've, had who've been there for generations, who are not recognized by the government? Your existence right. is not recognized. What happens to the data, right? Mm -hmm. If you're doing housing policy in Brazil, right, how do you build in, like, data in favelas, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, I, there are probably brilliant people in Brazil working on that, and I want to give them credit before, like, speaking out on mm -hmm. that. But, like, that's a global issue that people are then, are now thinking about. Mm -hmm. And then also, like, same context in South Africa, right? In South Africa, um, there, there was the kind of segregation you see similar to the United States, right? right, in apartheid. So what does that mean in context for housing policy? What kind of data are you then getting from South Africa, right? And so, mm -hmm. like, these are similar questions that we're all having to deal with. It's the same issue that we're having to deal with in Chicago, in mm -hmm. Detroit, Washington, D.C., where I'm from, you exactly. know, like, uh, east of the Anacostia, right? Right, And right. so, like, all of these issues are talking to each other, and then how do we deal with them in an equitable way so that more people can be included in the process? Thank you. And sort of shifting gears to specific policy in the U.S., we have the new NIST AI framework. As the introductory commenter said, they've spent about $6 billion in AI research, and I really want to talk about the development of AI redress. Um, and the NIST AI framework, is that a sort of a start to an actual pipeline for people to seek justice when being harmed by AI? How is that development looking like right now? So the NIST AI risk management framework is a risk management framework. Right. It is not an opportunity for redress. Mm. It is just a way for firms, um, for agencies, mm -hmm. uh, for organizations to think about how to think about AI risk. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting thing is that I think what's going to happen from the AI risk management framework is that agencies are going to take that framework and make it their own. Mm. Because there are particular risks to every single agency. There are particular risks to a variety of um, agency actions, right? Right. So if you're engaged in a number of different frameworks, if you are engaged in a number of different actions, so for energy policy, for example, right, there's certain risks there to our power grid, to systems, uh, to water, right, Department of Interior, uh, to land use, um, 
for transportation to mm-hmm. literal your life and your time in a car, right? What should right. be the standards on AI there? What should be the risk factors that people are taking into account there? And that can integrate both current law and both perspective, um, not perspective law, but perspective regulation on where um, certain risks should be understood to be. And it should be from a historical context because we're living in the same kind of like space. And so mm-hmm. I think there's this mishmash where, where there's going to be a convergence, I should say, of how agencies think about risk and then also how industry um, thinks about risk and also how like we as people think about risk. Like right. what is risky to us? Like when do people kind of get to be able to say, hey, when we're talking about risk management frameworks, we think this is a risky activity. Or firms be able to say, hey, we think this is like a reputational risk. It may be legal, right? But we may just not want to do it. And so like those contexts and those conversations are happening within the risk management framework right now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to be here. Anytime. Thank you. Final interview of this episode, Patrick Lynn in conversation with Lama Muhammad. Thank you so much for joining. I'm going to take us really broadly and I want to talk about the state of generative AI. Is this a real hype or is this sort of like the metaverse where people are piling a bunch of money into, an, into a theme and then sort of leaving it after a couple of months, or is this hype going to continue for a prolonged period of time? Um, well, I I think generative AI has a lot more staying power than the metaverse. Um, although I think I, I do approach it very cautiously. I think it's very much still an experiment. It's such a new technology. Um, and I think um, anytime we're met with this new innovation, I think it's important to meet, meet just come with just as much uh, sort of cynicism, not cynicism, but like skepticism and, and critical thinking, right? I think uh, it's something that there, there's a lot of issues, copyright issues, uh, biased data sets, things like that, that we still have to think about uh, amidst the hype. Absolutely. And in terms of discussing about competition, we see a lot of investment in generative AI, but are tech companies forgetting about the main problems? I mean, we still have misinformation as a big issue. Algorithmic bias is a big issue. Um, content moderation is a big issue. How are we making sure that we're still keeping these things top of mind as we continue to develop generative AI? Right, and that's where I think uh, as much sort of like digital literacy education, that's such a key piece of this. I think as much public involvement as possible to sort of look behind the black box. People aren't just excited about the output, but they're understanding the inputs, right? And how the algorithm is working, what it's picking out. Um, and I think involving public is sort of how you do these impact assessments, too. Exactly. Um, you know, I think we've seen the issues with, like, stable diffusion, how it's being used with um, Lenza, right? We're seeing, like, right. women are, are over-sexualized in a lot of imagery. Right, um, right. Non-consensual, non-consensual pornography has been used in these data sets um, as well. And so... It's important to look at what data is being used to train generative AI, like ChatGPT. Exactly. I think we're really focused on like the generative aspect. Right. And we right. We forget that it's uh, you know GPT is generative pre uh, pre trained transformer, and I think the pre trained part is a lot more important than the generative part. Right. I think the right. inputs. Right. Are we using biased data sets? Um, do we know how it's working on the back end? I think that's a lot more important. Um, and I think the content moderation piece. That's. That's something that I find myself still kind of like jumping back and forth on. Yeah. Um, as someone who is very much like a, like very unabashedly a big fan of Section 230, 
Um, I find that like content created by AI is a bit trickier. Right, I think right. It's, you know, I think especially with using ChatGPT, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's responding to user-provided queries, uh, but then it's pulling content from a bunch of different third parties, and I think that's where uh, it's a lot more difficult to, I think, moderate that content. Agreed. Yeah. And I kind of want to dig into the aspect of data a little bit. When we think about the data that powers AI, what kind of information is it scraping? And I think about you know the way that Google indexes their information, where people with more money more stereotypical results will come to the top of the page. How does that funnel bias and how does that also gatekeep information from protecting marginalized people, if that makes sense? Sure. Oh, yeah. No, that definitely makes sense. And I think that's a really important question that um, I think the folks who are, who are building this, they still don't know yet, right? I think, right. I think when you're relying on data sets that are just so massive, mm-hmm. it's difficult to really parse out like what is reliable information, right. what is bias information. And I think we're hearing on both ends of the spectrum, right? Of like, oh, this AI is like quote unquote woke, um, and we yeah. don't want that it's biased against conservative ideals. Right. And then we also have people saying, oh, well, it's actually really biased, and it's leaving out a lot of um, opinions and, and, and ideas from communities that have always been kind of neglected and, and excluded from, from a lot of this uh, discussion. Um, and I think, I think that's where there's there's that challenge of like you need to involve the public um, and, and have that discourse. Um, but that that bias, I think, is is kind of it, I don't think you could really just get rid of it. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's it's there. It's baked in. It's a matter of identifying which um, data points are kind of having the biggest impact on that bias um, and how that affects the output. Um, and yeah, I think I think I think that's a very difficult task to, to do, and as these data sets get larger and larger, that's only going to become like a more difficult task to take on. Sort of going back to what you said earlier about content moderation and Section Two Hundred and Thirty, um, something that's been on everyone's mind recently is Section Two Hundred and Thirty. Uh, this law has been around for years, and it's not just related to social media. It's about anything that has a platform and can collect comments or anything from the general public. So in the event we see a world without Section 230, God forbid, um, (laughs) many say this could be the end of the internet. Um, What does this say about potential generative AI? Could people get sued over the use of AI for spreading misinformation? What do these kind of consequences entail? Um, I will return your question with more questions. (laughs) Uh, But I guess first starting off, I do think that... uh, I mean, I think a lot of people who their gut feeling with respect to Section 230 is sort of, well, why, why should we be protecting or shielding Facebook, Twitter? Right. These are massive, massive uh, corporations who, um, you know, to different degrees have kind of like failed us, right, in, yeah. in different ways. Um, and, and, you know, maybe they should be held liable in certain, in certain ways. Um, but I... I think it's important to go back to, it's not about protecting these corporations. I think it's about protecting the speech of individual users, right? Right. And I think a lot of people who support Section 230, that's sort of what they're rooted in. Um, and and that's where, with generative AI, you know, I think it's, it's difficult to see how it uh, applies sort of like a one-to-one from like a social media platform to... Um, to generative AI, just because generative AI, it is creating content in a way from user queries, right? 
but I think the tricky thing there is what do we do when you're asking um, ChatGPT for investment advice or for mental health advice, right? Like, who is sort of putting their leg out to um, sort of take accountability for right. when that advice is not so great right. or when someone, um, you know, makes a mistake because they follow advice or content that's given to them by ChatGPT. Um, but that, that's where... I think there's still a lot of questions, and I'm, I'm not really sure how I land on it just yet. Yeah. I'm inclined to think that generative AI and content generated by AI should still be protected by Section 230. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think it's tricky, and I, I do see a lot of people who say, well, it shouldn't be. Um, it's not created by a person. Um, right, right. But that's sort of where I land. All right. Thank you for sharing. And sort of going back to what you discussed on your panel about, you know, data scraping and big data being stolen. I want to talk about justice. Um, is there anything in place for redress about what we can do to protect people whose data has been, you know, sort of stolen by AI? I'm thinking about voice AI specifically in relation to people's voices. Um, is there a pathway for justice in that sense? How could that hurt marginalized communities differently than others? Do you have any thoughts on that? I know it's a little niche. <laughs> no, no. You know, I think I'm going to use sort of uh, like art as an analogy here, right? right. I think I think when Lenza um, was you know relying on stable diffusion um, and that data set to you know produce these like you know magic avatars, um, you have a lot of artists saying, well, you know, you're potentially using my art. Some in a lot of cases, you would still see uh, people's like signatures or or their um, yeah, like their their uh, almost like um, like trademarks on right, on right. these uh, on this artwork generated by by Lenza, um, and there isn't a whole lot of protection for individual artists, right? right? right. I think graphic uh, and visual art is a is a field where there isn't a whole lot of ways for individual artists to get that recourse. Um, but where we're not seeing so much right now, um, we're starting to is AI generated music. Yes, right. Yes. The music industry has such strong copyright protections, right? I think if um, you know generative AI was suddenly using uh, music created by Beyonce or Taylor Swift, yeah, like it'd be over. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, like <laughs> For how sure. protective they are of their brand, of their of their copyrighted music. Right. Um, there's just no way, right? So I think it really depends on how already protected an industry or um, a market is. Um, and whether that information, like that information, that's being used or that content being used to inform what's being outputted by ChatGPT and other generative AI, um, I think that informs what protections are provided. So I think just speaking to your question about sort of like already marginalized communities, right? Artists having less protections already. Yes. Yes. Certain people, certain groups, certain communities that are already less protected, they will continue to be disparately impacted by this technology because there's already less protection for them. Yeah. And so without new laws, new rules in place, new best practices to catch up with that, those communities continue to be the most negatively impacted, I think. Agreed. And to sort of conclude, um, I know you're a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, but you also have a book and you're have started a job at an amazing law firm. And so I want to be able to provide our listeners advice from you about how to sort of get involved in this space, especially as it comes to the relationship between AI and criminal justice. It's an important time for that right now. Yeah, that is, that's a great question. I think, 
I think a lot of people get discouraged because they feel that they don't have the technical know-how um, right at the start, right? Um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, you know, those are all very complicated technical issues. Um, I think people think that they need to come in with a computer science background right, right. Um, in order to really have an informed opinion about it. Um, and I don't think that's the case. I think I think having a base understanding of how technology works uh, allows you to have an opinion. And also, right, right. something that I, I think about is a lot of like software companies are becoming what I have sort of like termed as like they're private policymakers, mm-hmm. right? We have more and more tech companies who are creating technology algorithms that have a really profound and, and you know huge impact on the public. And we have no say in the matter, right? right I think right. I think if, if a law is passed and we're like, oh, we're, we don't like that, there's more of a public discourse and more of a, a way for us to engage with that law or that right. rule. Um, but that's not the case when, you know, um, Palantir is being used to, like, make predictions about where crime is being done and things like that. Um, and I think that's where people with more of a policy interest, more of a sociology background, right? You know, I think just human uh, humanities in general, there's a really important time right now to bring those perspectives, and we don't just need people who have a technical background to have an opinion. Um, I think it's important, and, and um, I, I think it's just more important than ever for people with um, sort of that humanities, social science background to, to come to the table and, and contribute to that discussion. Wonderful. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. Recording live in the middle of a conference was a new thing for us and an experiment, so we would love to hear your feedback. Get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us. And if you enjoyed the show, leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host, producer, and editor of the show, and this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, particularly Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Allison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. Special thanks to Foundry Fellows Grant Versfeld, Gabe Rudin, Miles Light, Joe Catapano, and Aliana Apacible, for their contributions to the production of this episode. See you next week.